Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Hey, thanks for joining us today. Let me start with a question. Have you ever been called out? You remember back in school, maybe, when some teacher said, hey, I'm gonna call on you. Uh, I remember in graduate school, I had this great professor and I was taking him for the second time and early in the semester, he looked at me and he said, he called me Mr. McKee. He said, uh, Mr. McKee, uh, you took my class earlier and you know the answer to this, so why don't you share it with the class? <laughs> and I was thinking in my head, I had you like 18 months ago. I don't remember the answer. It was embarrassing. Not being called out like that, right? But today we're gonna, we're gonna see a story and we're gonna see the heart of Jesus as he sees a man and calls him out and calls him to himself. It's just unbelievable. And I wanna do this a little differently today. I just wanna read the story and then dive into it. We'll read the whole story. It's in Luke chapter 19, verses one to 10. This is what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter. He, meaning Jesus, is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. <laughs> That's been the whole theme of our study in the book of Luke, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Now, Jesus is going through Jericho. He's headed to Jerusalem for the last time. He's going there to lay down his life. Jericho is just to the northwest, I mean, excuse me, the northeast of Jerusalem. It's not too far away, maybe 20 miles. Historically, it's the city that the Israelites first conquered as they came into the Promised Land. It's a city of prominence there by the Jordan Valley. And so a lot of traffic would go through there to other countries and to Israel. So there was a real need for a tax collector, and there was so much con uh, commerce, there was a real need for a chief tax collector. And as Jesus travels, um, we, we see what we see this happen, that we see that Jesus is concerned about those who, were, frankly, were rejected by society and specifically rejected by the religious leaders. Now, we see that Jesus is concerned for them. Just like the parable in chapter 15 that we saw last week about a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son, 
Jesus is concerned about those who are lost. And Zacchaeus, this chief tax collector, was such a person. He's someone who is lost. Now, what does it mean or what do we mean by being lost? So first, let me clarify by describing what we don't mean. And to help me do that, I'm going to share a quote that you probably know or have seen. It's very simple. Not all who wander are lost. From the Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. Maybe you've never read the books or seen uh, the movies, but maybe you've seen the phrase, which is from a line in a poem, and it's from the Lord of the Rings, and it's speaking about Aragon. You know, he serves, you don't need to know who he is, but he serves as an example of a person uh, meandering down a path less traveled in an attempt to better himself and to understand his place in the world. I know many people have taken those words, put them on a bumper sticker and slapped it on their car, their SUV, and headed off for the grand adventure of self-discovery. Now, when Jesus said he's coming to seek the lost, he doesn't mean that he's trying to stop those who are in a uh, self-discovery trip, right? He's not trying to interrupt that kind of thing. Uh, he means more than just maybe those people who are off the path and, and maybe have lost their way. When Jesus speaks of the lost, he knows that they are in peril. That's what he's talking about, people in peril. They are in, in, uh, they're in danger's way. They're in a deadly situation, like the, like the lost sheep that Jesus described in Luke 15 that the shepherd would seek and find. Those sheep were, were just totally exposed to the elements and were, well, they were destined to be ravaged by the wild. This is what Jesus means when he speaks of the lost. The word that is translated lost is also translated perish or, or destroy and even kill. And one of the most famous passages of the Bible contains this word. And it's not translated lost, but perish. It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, shall not be lost forever, but have eternal life. Even in Matthew chapter 12, it says that the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus, how they might destroy Jesus, how they might have Jesus perish, how he may be lost forever. Jesus is concerned about those who are headed down a path that he knows is certain death and destruction. Not only in their physical life, but in the life to come. So when the Bible declares that Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost, it is those who will be forever lost, if not rescued and redeemed by Jesus. He wants them to know and love God. Yes, they may have maybe lost their way for a moment, but when Jesus describes it, he means death and separation from God. So here's our little working definition. The lost, those who will perish and be separated from God for eternity if they're not rescued and redeemed and saved by Jesus. That's what Jesus means by the lost. So now let's, let's look a little closer now that we've kind of gotten the whole picture of the story. And let's just review. You know, he entered Jericho in verses 1 through 4, passing through, and a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was... Um, 
He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Now, this man has a couple things working against him. First is the hatred that he has to endure. He's a tax collector, and because of the commerce of that area, he's a chief tax collector. Now, we know that tax collectors were despised because they were often Jewish people working for the oppressive Roman government, exacting taxes, and exploiting their very own people. Now, a chief tax collector obviously is going to manage the entire group of other collectors, benefiting from and maximizing his exponential return on such exploitation. He is hated. So that's the first thing he's dealing with. The second thing he's dealing with is he's short. He can't see. Well, right, he's, he's suffering from a height problem. He's got a, a short problem. And then the third thing is the crowds of people. There are so many people crowding around Jesus. They're like him. They're interested in the teacher, the miracle worker. And as it relates to being short and the crowds, he can and he does something about this disadvantage. He runs ahead and climbs a tree. Now, in Louisiana, where I'm from, particularly in the southern part of the state where there are parade seasons, um, we know a thing or two about securing the best spot so that we can position ourselves to catch some beads. You climb, you get up high, you climb whatever you have to. And for Nicodemus, it was a tree, a sycamore fig tree to be exact. Now, I can't imagine what this looks like, but imagine a wealthy businessman, a privileged person climbing up a tree to see Jesus. It shows you that Zacchaeus not only has interest, but deep determination. And here's what I want you to know and remember. The lost want to see Jesus. Now, I say that real frankly and deliberately because I think sometimes we forget that there are people, millions of people, 2.8 billion people on this planet that practice some form of Christianity, and there are people that want to see him today for many of the same reasons that they wanted to see him when he walked on this earth. He's a fascinating figure. He is, as I said, billions of people give allegiance and worship to him. He is worth seeing. And like then, there are many things that obscure a clear view of him. People want to see the real Jesus. But today, <clears throat> The challenge isn't really crowded streets. We'll get to the crowds in just a minute. I think the biggest challenge is loads and loads of false information, of false teaching, and really weird and crazy stuff done in the name of Jesus. So people are left, they're relegated to just Google Jesus, the name Jesus. And in doing so, they get an avalanche of unfiltered garbage that they right, that's next to impossible to sort through. Maybe that's been your experience. Maybe that's what's happened with you. Now, the crowds are also a problem. Uh, many people that want to see Jesus look at what's titled Christianity, and they see Christians fighting each other for power, for control, for political um, advantage. They don't, they don't necessarily see love, right? 
If, if, if someone you knew wanted to see Jesus, right, where would you send them? Would you, would you say, hey, why don't you, come, why don't you come to my community group? Uh, why don't you come sit at the table with, uh, with me and my family? Um, would you invite them to church? I, I really hope that you would. Christians loving and living authentically together is powerful. Christian community is a great place for people to see Jesus living out in community. Jesus actually told his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, the people of the world, in effect, will see me as you love each other. He said it in John chapter 13, verse 35. And let me quote it for you. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Loving one another and being in a place where people sacrificially love one another is a powerful testimony of who Jesus is. It allows us to begin to see him. That's why one of our values as a church is authentic relationships. We say it this way. Um, we commit to being real with God, ourselves, and others because we want people to see the real Jesus in our relationships. One of the, one of the one of the other most powerful places to see Jesus, the real Jesus, is in and through his words and teachings as recorded in the Bible. Now, over the years as a pastor, and I've been a pastor a while now, I meet many people. They have an idea of who Jesus is. They've read, say, what others have said about him, and yet they've not taken the time to read what Jesus says about himself. So, if you are trying to see Jesus, or if you have a friend that's trying to see Jesus, let me, let me give you a, a, um, a way to go about this. Just find a Bible and open it into the New Testament, the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and read a chapter, and then another chapter. Why John? John says at the end of his book, I write these things in his book, and his gospel, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So the whole book is written so that you might be able to see Jesus and respond to him. So let me just put it simply. Read a chapter um, of John's gospel and then answer these questions, whether it's by yourself or in a group. Three simple questions. What does that passage say or that chapter say about Jesus? What does Jesus say about himself? And what does this chapter say about the human condition? Just those three questions. And as you ask yourself, don't be intimidated. Just read it and go, what does it say about Jesus? What does he say about himself? And what does it say about the human condition? And you're going to become more and more aware of who Jesus is, the real Jesus. So if you're watching today and you want to know and understand who Jesus is, I need you to understand he wants to be seen. He's not hiding. He called Zacchaeus out of a tree. Let's look at that. Verses 5 and 6. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Here's what I need you to see about Jesus. He sees Zacchaeus. He stops in the exact spot and he looks up and he invites himself to stay at Zacchaeus' house. Well, talk about being personally recognized, being called out. You know, we've all seen 
politicians, our presidents during big fanfares, uh, get on the stage and as they're getting set to speak and they're you know, they're pointed people and they're waving. We we know what it's like. That's what you know. That's like this is really different. He's not wanting somebody to just. He's not. Jesus isn't trying to just recognize Zacchaeus. He's not trying to go. Hey, thanks for turning out. Glad you're here. That's not what he's doing. He wants to be with Zacchaeus. He wants to be with him. Now, uh, maybe we can't tell as people, but Jesus always knows when someone is seeking him. He knows when you're seeking him. And if that's what you're doing today, he knows that you are seeking him. So here's our second point. Jesus looks for the lost. Not only do the lost seek Jesus, but Jesus actively looks for the lost. He did then and he does now. This is his heart. This is Jesus really living out the parable of the lost son that we saw last week. And he's going after it. He's looking. He's trying to live it out. Now, now we can become so distracted and overwhelmed that we have one or two responses of the demands of life and the people around us who don't follow Jesus. So if you're a follower of Jesus, let me just say this. Maybe your response is uh, to think you're like the prophet Elijah. Elijah in, in 1 Kings 19, he just looked at God and said, I'm the only one who takes you seriously. No one else is. Now, of course, he was wrong, but what it led him to do was withdraw. And so many Christians forget that, like Jesus, we need to seek and recognize and see folks that are trying to get to him, and we withdraw. The other response is maybe like that of the prophet Jonah, the reluctant prophet. He, he was the prophet that said, hey, they need to get what they deserve, uh, the Assyrians. God wanted him to go preach the gospel to them, but Jonah was like, I don't want to do that. They're going to hear it. They're going to turn to you. Sometimes we can be overwhelmed and we can just assume that the world has just gone crazy and what people are doing and the problems they're creating for themselves, all the consequences, they just need to go ahead and deal with their own consequences. Now, the problem with this attitude is it causes us to withdraw, but it does it with a condescending attitude. Jesus is looking, and so should we. Now, don't miss the lesson of the larger scope of the book of Luke, and that is for his disciples. So if you're a Jesus follower, that's for us. And here's the broader lesson. Jesus initiates. Jesus doesn't just notice Zacchaeus. He stops. He sees him. He invites himself into Zacchaeus's home, and I would argue, into his life. We need to also, as followers of Jesus, take time to stop and to recognize when people are longing to understand who Jesus is. We need to take the initiative and reach out to them and invite them to come and see who he is, to come into our life. And what was Jesus's response to, to that invitation? He welcomed Jesus. It's so powerful. He came down and at once welcomed him gladly. <laughs> Verse, verse 6, it's just, what a powerful verse. It's full of joy, joyfully welcomed. See, not only are people looking for Jesus, and Jesus is looking for them, 
but they might indeed joyfully welcome Jesus into their home and into their life. Because that's what Jesus is still doing all around the world. They simply need an opportunity to see the real Jesus. Zacchaeus, once he had that, he responded to it. He is full of joy. And contrastively, the crowds of people around him are not. Hmm. It says in verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to eat, to be a, uh, the guest of a sinner. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Of course, they're talking about Jesus. See, they love Jesus' miracles, but they don't care about his personal associations. Jesus isn't simply eating with sinners now, as we've seen in some of the previous stories. He is now staying with them, likely in a huge house that was built on the back of Jewish taxpayers. That's the way I like to envision it. So here's our third point. Jesus is criticized for his concern for the lost. And sometimes as we find ourselves being criticized as Christians for those that we love, Jesus had the same experience. Jesus is critiqued. He's seemingly public, publicly called out, right? Maybe during the meal. And let me tell you, it's easy to mutter and grumble when grace is given out especially if it's given out to those who you feel are undeserving or, or have personally hurt you. And Zacchaeus had probably hurt these people. They definitely thought he was undeserving. But the grace of God goes equally to all. And as we saw last week, where the father said, I had to celebrate for the son of mine who was dead is alive, he who was lost has been found. Jesus is doing that right now. He has to celebrate. And yet the people are complaining. Their complaint, their criticism is about Jesus staying with sinners. Now, if they had been learning anything about his ministry along the way, they would have known his heart for the tax collectors and sinners. So they, they haven't learned much. And oftentimes we're like disciples and it's hard for us to learn this is at the very heart of God. Now, the depths, uh, the depth of Zacchaeus' welcome of Jesus is seen in his changed life. He responds in an amazing way to Jesus. What about you? What, let me just ask you for just a second before we get to that response. What about you? Are you, are you a, a grumbler? When you see people receiving the grace of God, does it bug you? Are you part of that distracting wall of people, that crowd that's just arguing about various facets of Jesus rather than making room and helping people who are looking for him see Jesus? Well, when people see Jesus, they can trust him, right? And once they trust him, crazy things happen. There can be radical life change. And many Christians will tell you about their radical life change. I experienced radical life change, and Zacchaeus did as well. It says in verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, 
Here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay him back four times the amount. Zacchaeus is declaring a change in his status. His repentance, his belief in Jesus has changed him. First of all, he calls Jesus Lord. And then he makes two very significant statements, each seemingly just pouring out of his heart and in response to the grumbling that I guess they all heard. First, he's going to give away half of his possessions. That's 50%, right? Well, people in his world would have been considered radically generous if, if they gave away 20%. And remember, there's no tax incentives to give away half of your stuff. And people in our day, when it's 10%, they're considered to be radically generous. But it's estimated that Americans, on average, though we're very generous, only give about 2.1%. That's largely because so few people do give, but it's still a low number. And what happened to, what happened to Zacchaeus? He's radically changed. He's very wealthy. His whole life was built on assuming and consuming and taking money. And now that's changed. Secondly, the second thing he says is, I'm going to personally pay back four times any damages. And he knows he's wronged people. So he's going to be paying back a lot. So much payback was really significantly more than was required in the Old Testament. There was some payback required, but not four times. A person that once lived to exploit others on an industrial level is now paying restitution. How, how does that happen? How does a man who builds his whole life in gathering money all of a sudden start giving it away? How does that happen? That happens when we have a real and authentic encounter with Jesus. Radical change. He's gone overboard. And that's what happens in a grace-filled life, a grace-changed life. That's what it looks like. And when does this change come? After he welcomed Jesus and repented and believed in him. Too often, we want to see people change without them knowing and loving Jesus. That's moralism, not radical change. And people might be able to fake it for a season. But this is radical change. And this declaration sets up Jesus' response to Zacchaeus and to the room. It says, He said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Jesus addresses Zacchaeus, but really loud enough so everyone can hear. And he is explaining what happened. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus and his house. He's restored to God. He's been rescued. He's been found. Being a sinner does not cancel one's right to appeal to God's mercy. The crowd kind of misread that moment. Being Jewish didn't ensure it, and being a sinner didn't exclude it. Zacchaeus, like every one of us, responded in faith, and it made all the difference. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, that there's a righteousness that is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, and there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. 
Everybody needs to come to Jesus. Zacchaeus, Jewish man, didn't forfeit his right or opportunity to turn to God because he had become a tax collector. He repented and he turned to Jesus and he found grace and mercy, right? He, is, he was lost and he is now found. And the whole story ends with Jesus giving one of the few mission statements of his life in the New Testament. He gives the reason why he's come to this earth. He explains why he exists. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This passage reminds us and stresses Jesus' initiative to seek the lost and to proclaim salvation on those who respond to him. It is what Jesus came to do. His title, his self-given moniker, Son of Man, is to reinforce not only his deity, but also his humanity and his concern for humanity. Our last point is simply this. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We must never forget this statement by Jesus. It's his own explanation of why he came to earth and what we're to be about as his followers, to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, and if you're, if you're trying to see him, I hope this passage, his words, his actions toward Zacchaeus helps you understand his heart. He wants to save you. He wants to be your savior. He wants to find you. He doesn't want you to be lost. The question is, will you welcome him? Will you repent as Zacchaeus did, turning to him and believe on him? Now, the Bible says there's, there's bad news and there's good news for humanity. I want to talk about the bad news for just a minute. It's something that I think we're all somewhat aware of if we live on planet Earth, that we're all lost, that we're all sinners, that there's a lot of confusion going on in this world. Man, and it says in, in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that's a, that's a pretty pronounced statement. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. It means is we're as bad off as we could be. It means that sin has uh, contaminated everything. And here, literally, the word means you miss the mark. We miss um, the mark of God's holy perfection. Let, let me illustrate it. Behind our LSU location or the LSU lake, say we go down to the shore, we each have a um, pocket full of rocks, and um, you look at me and say, hey, let's throw rocks across the, uh, the lake. Let's see who can throw the furthest. Well, you may be able to throw three times as far as I can, but you're not going to throw across the lake. They're too, they're too big. In other words, you may throw further than me, but you're not going to get there. You're still going to miss the mark. And it's the same way with God's perfection. Some people live amazingly beautiful lives, but it's nothing compared to the holy perfection of God. We all miss the mark. So the bad news gets worse. And so what does it say? It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that means is simply this. When we sin, we earn death. Like the wages you earn at work, whether it's part-time or full-time, you work and you get a wage. And when we live and we sin, it creates death. Death always means separation. When we die physically, we're separated from our body. When we die spiritually, we're separated from God. And here's the beautiful thing. 
God knew there was nothing we could do to get to him, so he came to us. He sought us out. He sent Jesus to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus did it by dying in our place for us. It says it this way in Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for this, uh, for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When it says that Christ died for us, it means that he died in our place. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you have a fatal blood disease, something in your blood, a cancer in your blood that will kill you. And say that you have a friend that has healthy blood. And through a transfusion, you give your friend um, your blood and he gives you his blood. So now in you is the good blood and in him is the bad blood. What would happen is that what was, he took what was killing you. That bad blood will kill him. And his good blood is going to save you. This is what Jesus did for us. He took what was killing us, our sin, and it killed him. And then he rose from the dead. And now he gives us life. And the way we get in on that life is the same way Zacchaeus did. By believing who Jesus is what he did for us, and it's by faith. We are saved by faith. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Four different ways this verse says that salvation is a gift. It's by grace, it's not of ourselves, it's a gift, it's not by works. We don't work our way to heaven. We trust that God has prepared a way, and we trust it. We obtain our salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ, who he is and what he uh, said he did, namely that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. I like to, use, I like to illustrate this by, by talking about a chair. Um, very rarely do, do we see people examine chairs. They just, they just sin at them. We assume they're going to hold us. But let's say that you made a chair, all right? You made it and uh, you sit in it and it's just awesome. And, but you have a friend that comes up and they said, oh, I like that chair. It's your first one? Yeah, it's my first chair. And you sit in and go, look, it's really comfortable. Someone else comes over and sits in it. Oh, that's great. And your friend says, hey, I know and accept that, it, that people sit in it. I'm just not going to sit in it. They haven't trusted the chair. Likewise, I meet people all the time who know about Jesus, actually accept that he lived and he taught, that he died, even that he rose from the dead. They accept it. They've just never trusted it. And trusting Jesus means you know him, you, you, you know about him, you accept his person and work, but then you trust in him. If you're seeking Jesus, He's seeking you. If you want to see him, he wants you to be seen. I wonder, would you trust him for salvation today? Right where you are, you can just um, bow your, the, the, your heart and your head and just say, Lord, I want to trust in you today. It's more than just knowledge in our head or, or some kind of intellectual acceptance. It's actually putting your trust in him. That's what Zacchaeus did. 
And what Zacchaeus found was freedom, was liberty, was purpose, was joy, was life. Would you pray with me? I want to pray for you and with you. Lord Jesus, thank you for your heart to seek and find those that are lost. That includes me. That includes everybody you've found. Billions upon billions of people. I pray for those that are listening today that find themselves grumbling when people are receptive of your grace, that we might be rejoicing. Lord, I pray for those of us who've crowded the way. We need to make way for others to see the real you. Would we be gracious with our space and time and heart? But mostly, Lord, I pray for those who need to trust you. As they're watching this, they're looking for you, and they've learned today that you're looking for them. I pray for them, Lord, that they would take the grand step and put their faith in you. If that's you, just simply say to Jesus right where you are, Jesus, today, I'm going to turn and face you. I'm going to turn away from all the things that pull me away. I'm going to look at you and I'm going to declare, I trust that you died on the cross for my sin in my place to make a way for me. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And all I know about you, I entrust all I know about me. And I thank you that you love me and that you forgive me. And I gladly, joyfully welcome you into my life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have any questions about trusting Christ, becoming a Christian, visit our website, thechapelbr.com slash yes. If you have any questions, also contact us at connect at thechapelbr.com. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.